teachers are called upon to wear a lot of hats. The multitude of responsibilities includes advice givers to students who are just beginning to make the mistakes that are common to all of us. One particular piece of advice that I feel strongly about is that one should be quite reluctant to go back and begin dating their ex again. The rationale behind the advice is that all too often there is a perfectly good reason for the relationship failing in the first place, and more significantly, that that perfectly good reason will once again rear its ugly head. Still, it can be hard to resist rekindling an old romance after time has passed. I even once ignored my own advice by getting back into a relationship from which just a week earlier the two of us had decided to call it quits. The subsequent day that followed the breakup remains etched into my mind as my friends who were slightly worried about me dragged me out to some local baseball game. Still to this day I can remember how green the grass looked and how wonderful the air smelled. I also remember being summoned by my ex to talk some things out, during which time I relented and decided to give the relationship a second chance. What followed in the wake of that decision was roughly a year and a half of wasted time, which resulted in a harsh breakup that sent the two of us our separate ways for good. Dr. Teresa Danto informs us that between 40 to 50% of us have made the same mistake, revealing to us that people often resume relationships with ex-partners because of lingering feelings. The science tells us that this is one instance where it is a mistake to follow your heart, with one small sample study revealing that only 15% of these resumed relationships made it the distance, while a 2017 study found that the second time around resulted in less satisfaction, validation, and fulfillment. And Kale Monk, a professor who studies cyclical relationships, finds that on-again, off-again relationships tend to be mired with toxicity. Despite the long-shot odds, however, individuals will continue to reach out to their exes, hoping that their second time together ends differently. This concept isn't limited to just relationships. I'm a supporter of the Chelsea Football Club, one which is known by the unofficial slogan of chaos and trophies. The chaos tends to be visible in the fact that the team changes managers a lot. In just the past five years, Chelsea won the Europa Cup with Maurizio Sarri, who had been notified of his dismissal in the midst of a trophy-winning campaign. Sarri was replaced by club legend Frank Lampard, who did the unthinkable in securing Champions League football despite having a vastly depleted roster only for a poor run of forms to see him ousted and replaced with Thomas Tuchel, a man who immediately turned the team around to win the Champions League, the highest honor available to the club. But just 10 weeks into his second season, he was let loose by ownership for his refusal to collaborate with the club's owners. Chelsea then hired Graham Potter to step up to a bigger club, but fired him seven months later in favor of Frank Lampard, returning as an interim manager one week before the quarterfinals of the Champion League. Their decision to return to their ex, 
a man whom the club had fired just two years earlier might have you scratching your head. But it has worked out for them before, as Jose Mourinho still holds the club record for the most domestic titles across his two runs as Chelsea manager. Could the same hold true for the world of politics? Or is the decision to take back a failed leader an exercise as doomed as my high school relationship was? France in 1814 is one setting to determine the answer, as aboard Napoleon will make his way from exile to replant himself as the Emperor of France. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the last in a series regarding Napoleon Bonaparte. Episode number eight, Don't Call It a Comeback. Napoleon established himself as a full-fledged military genius after an ultra-successful Italian campaign. He retained the title despite a disastrous Egyptian excursion, recovering his reputation via another second successful war against Austria. The 1812 wars, which happened to bear the Frenchman's name, were nothing short of a disaster. The Bonaparte-led fiasco resulted in the loss of over 500,000 soldiers and was a significant blow to the Corsican's empire. The campaign was fraught with difficulties from the beginning, with historian Adam Zamoski noting that Napoleon's plan was based on assumptions that were at best optimistic and at worst delusional. The Russian army liberally employed a scorched-earth tactic burning their own fields and cities in order to deny Napoleon's army food and shelter. The strategy allowed the harsh Russian winter to decimate the French forces. By the time Napoleon's army reached the emptied husk that was Moscow, it had been reduced to fewer than 100,000 soldiers. Despite a lack of food and shelter, Napoleon stubbornly refused to retreat occupying Moscow, only to see it burned to the ground in a fire that raged for five days. Russian author Leo Tolstoy eloquently wrote of the scene, The whole city was ablaze, the heavens were aglow, and the smoke rolled in clouds towards the Kremlin. Napoleon was finally forced to retreat from Russia in humiliation. He was given no respite as his retreating army struggled to survive the brutal winter alongside constant attacks from the Russian army, as well as a furious contingent of the peasantry who were out for blood. By the end of the campaign, Napoleon's reputation was in tatters. Historian Alistair Horn notes that Napoleon's Russia campaign was a disaster of epic proportions, which seriously undermined the French Empire's military might and caused a crisis of confidence in Napoleon's leadership. Despite all of this, the emperor arrived back in Paris exuding an aura of self-confidence. It was a defiant act of delusion put on by a doomed man. Napoleon had arrived home to a full-blown economic crisis. 
He put out the fire by significantly reducing government salaries and implementing new harsh taxes and another draft. The unpopular policies weren't enough, however, as the stock market collapsed upon news that the Allies arrayed against them had gained possession of numerous frontier factories that were the engine that had kept France humming. The emperor was called to task by France's legislative branch, appearing before them in December of 1813. Napoleon was formally censured and cowed into promising to consult the parliament on all peace proposals received that could conceivably end the war. He had second thoughts, however, on the day after, and proceeded to immediately dissolve the legislative branch. Napoleon was willing to accept peace, even if it would merely be a ceasefire. In November of 1813, he had accepted Austria's terms that France would be restored to its natural frontiers. The proposal had more to do with avoiding the propagandist dream of Russian soldiers marching the Champs-Élysées than any sympathy for Napoleon. But that offer was revoked early in 1814 without explanation. Since the emperor hadn't announced his prior acceptance of the agreement, it was as if it had never occurred. At this double-cross, Napoleon entertained the notion of going down with the ship, despite the fact that it appeared to be a hopeless cause, as he only had 80,000 exhausted survivors against 300,000 victorious allies. In desperation, he called up the National Guard, aged reservists, police, forest rangers, and customs officials to restore his offensive firepower, while simultaneously ordering Paris to be turned into a fortress. As was his nature, Napoleon went on the offensive, once again shunning any thought towards organizing a more practical insurgent guerrilla force. His actions in February of 1814 would become collectively known as the Six Days Campaign, during which Napoleon showed off why the world had dubbed him a genius so many years ago. The campaign began with a surprise attack on the Allied forces, who had remained camped outside of Paris. The French attack was swift and decisive, with Napoleon's forces able to break through the Allied lines. Historian Andrew Roberts notes that the Six Days Campaign was a masterful display of Napoleon's military genius, as he was able to outmaneuver his opponents and win a stunning victory in a matter of days. The key difference between this set of battles and the Russian campaign was that Napoleon was back within his element, wielding a small but highly mobile force against a significantly larger foe. Despite being outnumbered and outgunned, Napoleon successfully rallied his troops, leading them to victory. The campaign was marked by a series of hard-fought engagements, with Napoleon's forces engaging in Parisian street fighting with the Allied troops who had entered French territory. One of the most significant engagements of the campaign was the Battle of Montemarte. In this battle, Napoleon's forces were able to capture the strategic heights of the city, which gave them control. Historian Alistair Horne notes that the Battle of Montemarte was a turning point in the campaign, 
as it allowed Napoleon to take control of the city and rally his troops for further engagements. In the battle, the French lost a mere 600 soldiers, compared to an Allied casualty list that contained more than 6,000 names. The little corporal's stunning victory, seven over the course of eight days, obliged the Allies to once again offer Napoleon terms that saw France reduced to its natural boundaries. Flushed with confidence, it was Napoleon who turned it down this time. Historian Frank McLinn details why the decision was an act of political malfeasance. The Brit writes, From a military point of view, Napoleon's position at the end of February looked promising. But the apparent situation masked a host of problems. The emperor had reached the end of his ingenuity. His armies were exhausted. There were no recruits. France seemed stuck in apathy and morale in the army failed to pick up. Ominously, too, the Allies' political will was growing stronger. The fighting went back and forth throughout March, with neither side able to achieve a breakthrough. During the Ides of March, a shell exploded directly beneath the Emperor's horse, killing the creature instantly, but Napoleon miraculously emerged from the chaos without a scratch. Zamoski suggests that the fact that Napoleon put himself in such danger may have been a reflection of his suicidal state of mind. The game came to an abrupt end for Napoleon after an intercepted letter from his wife, Marie-Louise, identified his next location. Armed with the information, the Allies joined their armies and marched on Paris, comforted by the fact that the little Corsican was headed the opposite way, towards St. Dizier, 132 miles to the east of the capital. Three days later, Paris surrendered, and the limp resistance put up throughout the nation fully collapsed. Napoleon raged at his brother Joseph, who after losing the entire nation of Spain, had done little to nothing to fulfill his orders to fortify the city of Paris. Worse, Joseph had failed to heed his brother's desperate urging to ensure that no legitimate government figure remained in the city. His fear that a captive might be compelled to legally transfer power to an allied nominee. That role was played willingly by French Foreign Minister Charles Talleyrand, who had been secretly working for the Austrians all along. He successfully played the old I-forgot-my-passport card at the checkpoint and supposedly rushed home to retrieve it. Rather than traveling with him, Joseph took the traitor at his word. Historian Robert Massey reveals that Talleyrand's decision to stay behind in Paris and negotiate with the Allies was a masterful stroke of political maneuvering. By positioning himself as a mediator between the outgoing regime and the incoming conquerors, he was able to help ensure a relatively peaceful transition of power, one that ultimately would be against the emperor's interests. Still, Napoleon persevered to fight on at the head of his remaining 60,000 men. On April 4th, however, he received the distressing information that his hero Alexander the Great had once come by 
as his marshals informed the emperor that the army will not march. Due to this revolt of the marshals, Napoleon was forced to write out an abdication of his position. Seeking to gain something from a string of recent victories, he made his departure conditional on the Allies accepting his son as the new ruler of France. His request was summarily rejected, and two days later he put pen to paper ordering an unconditional surrender. Five days later the Allies accepted, agreeing to the Treaty of Fontainebleau. The deal was generous, considering the fact that Napoleon had agreed to an unconditional surrender. McLinn teaches us that Napoleon was granted the title of emperor and given sovereignty over the island of Elba, where he was to receive a stipend of 2 million francs from the French government. The rest of the Bonapartes were giving pensions, while Marie-Louise received the Duchy of Parma with reversion to her son. So why didn't the Allies just kill the fallen warlord? Roberts tells us that they did not want to appear vindictive or bloodthirsty in the eyes of the world, and they believed that executing Napoleon would only serve to fuel resentment and bitterness among his supporters. Historian Alistair Horn further reveals to us that the Allies were not in a position to hold a trial or execute Napoleon without risking further conflict. By exiling him to Elba, they were able to remove him from power and reduce the risk of renewed conflict, while still allowing him to live out the rest of his life in relative comfort. In the Emperor's place would be King Louis XVII, the younger brother of Louis XVI, who had been deposed and executed during the French Revolution. Napoleon had a mere six days to prepare for life in exile, and was of two minds as to whether or not the Empress should share his fate. His indecision ultimately cost him the love of his faithful wife, as Marie-Louise became the pawn of her Austrian family. Absent from her husband, she fell in love with the noted ladies' man, Count Adam Abrech von Nepperg. They would go on to have two children together. Despite the Empress's unwavering support for her husband throughout his failed campaigns, the two never spoke again after exchanging a New Year's greeting at the beginning of 1815. To add insult to injury, Napoleon's greatest fear came to pass as he had told the world that he would prefer his son to be killed rather than see him brought up in Vienna as an Austrian prince. Napoleon III, who was only four years old at the time, was taken and raised by his maternal grandparents, the Emperor of Austria Francis I and his wife Marie Theresa. Although the boy's every need was taken care of, he was prohibited from all travel as well as any and all political activities. He lived a mostly anonymous life, passing away at the age of 21 of tuberculosis. Napoleon began his sentence after being escorted to his captor's ship. The British insisted on subjecting their enemy to a perp walk, 
leading him past massive crowds of Frenchmen who consoled themselves by burning their emperor in effigy. It was a far cry from the Roman-styled triumphs that had previously been thrown in his honor. At one point, his guards were forced to push back the mob, which longed to lynch the Corsican. He was ferried to his new kingdom under the guard of 62 hostile Polish lancers, but was later joined by 600 members of his loyal guard. The island of Elba, located off the coast of Tuscany in Italy, was a small and relatively insignificant place when Napoleon arrived there in May of 1814. At the time, it was part of the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, which was ruled by the Habsburgs. Elba had a population of around 12,000 people, most of whom were engaged in fishing, agricultural, and maritime trade. The island was about 28 square miles in size, a bit larger than the island of Manhattan, and a full 12 square miles smaller than the city of Paris. It represented quite a step down for a man who had recently controlled nearly the entirety of continental Europe. German philosopher Hegel described the emperor's sudden change in fate with the words, it is a frightful spectacle to see such a great genius destroy himself. There is nothing more tragic in Greek literature. The entire mass of mediocrity, with its irresistible leaden weight, has succeeded in bringing down the highest to the same level as itself. At least the view was good as the island had a rugged and mountainous terrain with some fertile valleys. The island's main town, Portofiero, was a small but bustling port with narrow streets and houses built in the Italian Renaissance style. He wasn't exactly a prisoner, as he was given the title of Emperor of Elba and granted sovereignty over the island. His reign didn't start off well, as there were two recorded instances of Napoleon attempting to take his own life. The more famous of the two attempts is described in his own memoirs. He consumed a soldier's poison pill that contained black taffia. He had carried the pill of last resort during his prior three campaigns. Subsequently, the poison had lost its potency over the years, merely leaving him immensely sick. Without corroborating evidence, however, many historians take the antidote with a grain of salt, believing that Napoleon may have fabricated the story in an attempt to gain sympathy for his plight. After coming around to accept his new reality, he immediately set about improving the island's infrastructure and economy. He built new roads, improved the harbor, and established a number of public works projects. He also created a new currency, the Elben Franc, and introduced a number of social reforms, including the abolition of feudalism. Doing more to spread the ideology of the French Revolution here than anywhere else that he had conquered. McLinn believes that Napoleon enjoyed playing ruler of his miniature kingdom for the first few months, during which time he bursted with activity towards his pursuit of grandiose ambitions for the tiny island, including the establishment of Elba's very own military school. 
Napoleon's presence brought a great deal of attention to the island. Visitors came from all over Europe to see the former French ruler and his new court. Indeed, the island's population swelled as people arrived to take advantage of the new economic opportunities. His youngest sister, Pauline, came to stay with him, as well as mother, Letizia. For the occasion, he commissioned a new palace for them that overlooked the harbor. He himself was staying in a former home of the famous Florentine Medici family. Although Napoleon wasn't able to convince his wife to break free of her new lover's clutches, he was soon visited by his Polish love, Marie Waleczka, who brought their son to visit for a few days. It's impossible for a tiger to change its stripes and Napoleon soon oversaw the creation of a small army, designed to assist supposedly in the protection of the island and its profitable shipping lanes. Although the Treaty of Fontainebleau cautiously limited his forces to a mere 1,000 men, Napoleon ensured that the soldiers that he did have were in top fighting condition. As he had while commanding the French, he divided his forces into several units, including infantry, cavalry, and artillery, the last of which was filled to the brim with experienced gunners who had served under Napoleon before. Despite his improvements, life on Elba wasn't easy for Napoleon. He was confined to a relatively small area of the island, existing under constant surveillance by the Allied powers that had exiled him there. Beneath the strain, he suffered from bouts of ill health and was often found to be in a state of deep depression. Philip Dwyer notes that Napoleon was certainly prone to bouts of depression, particularly during moments of crisis, and his exile on Elba was certainly such a moment. The historian goes on to describe how Napoleon's depression manifested itself on Elba, noting that the emperor often spoke of feeling melancholy and desolate, and he complained of feeling morose and irritable. Another historian, Alan Forrest, notes in his book Napoleon that the conditions of exile on Elba were difficult for Napoleon, who was used to the grandeur and ceremony of imperial life. He was isolated and found it difficult to adjust to the mundane routines of daily life on the island. Forrest suggests that this sense of dislocation and alienation contributed to the Corsican's depression, noting that Napoleon's mental state deteriorated over time as he became increasingly restless and discontented. It worsened in June when he picked up a newspaper to find out that his first wife, Josephine, had passed away after catching a chill while walking in her garden. His mood and his prospects further soured when it became clear that King Louis had no intention of abiding by the Treaty of Fontainebleau, which stipulated that France would pay annually two million francs to Napoleon's little kingdom. McLean writes that gradually Napoleon lost interest in his tiny kingdom and rarely emerged from his two-story palace. 
Disappointed with the standard of his court, he soon gave up holding receptions, preferring to play dominoes with his immediate circle of intimates. He was so bored that he started taking up practical jokes. Once he slipped a fish into Bertrand's pocket, then asked him for the loan of a handkerchief so that the fish came slopping out onto the table. Another time, he shortened the chair legs in order to play a practical joke on a visiting British officer. When the Brit pointed out that his chair was noticeably lower than the others at the table, the emperor replied, Ah yes, I must apologize. We had to make do with what we had, and that was the only booster seat we could find. Another time, he sought to confuse English tourists who were hoping to gaze upon the Corsican ogre. For the occasion, he donned a wig, as well as a fake mustache, while speaking in a heavily thick Italian accent. His fun and games appear to be an expression of boredom rather than joy, and there were signs that he began to contemplate an attack on the mainland as early as the winter of 1814. The Bourbons were refusing to pay up, and the economy of Elba soon found itself in a freefall. Ironically, the Napoleonic Wars had created a glut on the market regarding iron, Elba's most important export. McLinn describes for us the state of the emperor's finances, revealing that the cheapness of the Bourbons was particularly reprehensible since Napoleon had accepted the annuity of 2 million francs in return for the 160 million francs of real estate and other property he had left behind on the mainland. By the end of 1814, the 4 million francs he had taken with him in cash to Elba was completely exhausted. He would therefore not be able to pay the 400 members of his old guard or the squadron of Polish cavalry, and would thus be wide open to assassination attempts, which were constantly threatened. Reports were persistently reaching the Bonaparte estate that the allies which had deposed him were in a state of disarray, with Tsar Alexander raging against the excess of Louis's newly restored French court. At one point, the Tsar was so offended that he told confidence that one would think that it was actually he who put me on my throne. In his first action, Louis had fired the loyal armsmen of Napoleon, relegating the mighty French army to the scrap heap. He restored Catholicism and worked to wind back the clock on the gains of the French Revolution. Urban workers were dismayed at the effects of the dismantling of the continental-wide boycott of England as the markets immediately became flooded with cheap British goods. The final push for a return to the mainland came from Napoleon's mother, who told her son, Go fulfill your destiny. You were not made to die on this island. On February 16th, Napoleon's British minder temporarily departed from Elba in order to deal with a medical issue. The next day, the emperor ordered his preparations, and nine days subsequent, on February 26, Napoleon bade farewell to his island jail. The small fleet of six ships carried 1,026 men, 
including 650 of the Imperial Guard and 100 Polish Lancers. They encountered just one ship, but slipped past by informing the opposing vessel that the Great Man remained on Elba. The invasion force landed two days later, with the Emperor boldly proclaiming that he would arrive in Paris without firing a shot. Robert sets the scene for us. As Napoleon made his way through the French countryside, crowds of people lined the roads to catch a glimpse of him. Farmers dropped their tools and joined his march, and soldiers deserted their regiments to swell his ranks. But there were dicey moments as the Bourbon rulers were instantly made aware of their rival's landing. The king sent a small detachment under Major del Sarte to capture the Corsican. But upon encountering his opposition, Napoleon dismounted and slowly walked within firing range of his would-be captors. Face to face with the enemy, he opened his jacket, showing them his white waistcoat underneath, proclaiming to them, Here I am. Kill your emperor if you wish. He then lied to them, repeating the play that saw him successfully rise to power in the coup of Bermir. In this instance, he informed the soldiers that the 45 best heads of the government in Paris had called him from Elba, and that his return was supported by the three first powers of Europe. For those who had already wanted to believe that a return with their ex was possible, Napoleon's bold-faced lie triggered their personal confirmation bias, allowing them to believe as they wished. The people of Grenoble reacted similarly to the arrival of their ex-emperor, opening the gates to him and providing an honor guard, victoriously proclaiming, Long live the emperor. His army soon swelled to more than 8,000 men. At this point, Paris began to panic, dispatching General Ney to put an end to Napoleon's sojourn. Ney was a veteran of the Russian campaign, a campaign in which the officer survived miraculously after being cut off from the main force during the Battle of Moscova. Despite only having 3,000 men at his disposal, he initiated an attack against a force of 80,000, breaking through the lines and escaping beneath the cover of darkness, ferrying his men across a frozen river via ice flow. From there, he was harassed by depraved Russian peasants, arriving home to Napoleon with 900 other survivors. The escape became the thing of legends, with one story alleging that Ney taunted his pursuers with the words, Here I am, you devils, kill me if you dare. For his heroics, he earned the nickname, The Bravest of the Brave. With pre-existing history, one wonders how on earth Louis trusted Ney to be the one that finished off his former commanding officer. In fact, all it took was a handwritten letter from Napoleon, which proclaimed that I shall receive you as I did on the morrow of the Battle of Moscova. Sympathy won the day, and Ney defected, pledging his entire force to Bonaparte. His decision tipped the balance in favor of reuniting France with their former flame. 
As news of Napoleon's approach spread, hysteria gripped the streets of Paris. The king and his advisors immediately realized they had to flee the city, but they faced the daunting task of evading the advancing forces. Historian David Chandler describes the scene as follows. The French monarchy was caught in a state of complete disarray. Louis XVIII and his entourage hurriedly packed their bags and fled the city, leaving behind a sense of chaos and confusion. The king's escape was fraught with danger and uncertainty. He and his advisors traveled in disguise, changing their route frequently to avoid detection. At one point, they were nearly discovered by a group of Napoleon soldiers, but managed to slip away just in time. As they made their way through the countryside, Louis XVIII's nerves began to fray. Historian Paul Britton Austin tells us that the king was a nervous wreck. He had never been a brave man, and the fear of falling into Napoleon's hands was almost too much for him to bear. Napoleon's triumphant return to Paris was met with mixed reactions. Some saw him as a savior, coming to restore order and stability to France, while others viewed him as a dangerous usurper who threatened the fragile peace that had been established after years of war. Rather than choose a side, many fled the city in anticipation of the inevitable renewal of hostilities. Napoleon entered the city as planned on March 20th, his son's birthday. The timing of getting back with his ex couldn't have been more wrong, as the jealous suitors of France, the allies which had sentenced Napoleon to exile in the first place, all happened to be meeting in Vienna at the precise moment of his return. Austria's Metternich discovered the news of Napoleon's imminent arrival at 7 a.m., and by 8 a.m., the Russians, Germans, and British had all declared war on France. Desperate for time to consolidate his power, Napoleon pleaded with the Allies that he had turned over a new leaf and that he was more than willing to accept a France constrained by the 1792 borders that had preceded his prior wars of conquest. He told them, my system has changed. No more war, no conquests. He then asked rhetorically, can one be as fat as I am and have ambition? They responded by naming him an enemy of humanity and a promise that if captured, he would be banished from Europe forever. In the face of such hostility, Napoleon acted with lightning speed lying through his teeth to the French Parliament that he would accept their authority, including a rewritten constitution designed to limit his power. To show his sincerity, he placed Benjamin Constant in charge of the revisions. Constant was no ally of Napoleon and had responded to the emperor's return with the dire warning that he has reappeared. This man died with our blood. He is another Attila, another Genghis Khan, but more terrible and more hateful because he has at his disposal the resources of civilization. Napoleon mortgaged France's economic future by initiating a plan to raise 800,000 men by October 1815. 
If he could manage to trick the Allies into focusing their ire on a fortified Paris and Lyon, he would be able to hold out long enough to see his new force fully trained. Lacking, however, were leaders ready to grab the martial batons. The prior wars had seen his officer corps decimated, and his downfall had resulted in more than a few betraying him in his final days, as each sought to cut out their own sweetheart deals. Thus, he began the Hundred Days Campaign with a mere 280,000 troops, led by incompetent underlings. Surprisingly, the worst of which was Ney, whom Napoleon would come to wish had died on his fateful escape from Russia. McLinn is brutal to Ney, referring to him as a French sloth, as well as writing that the decorated French marshal was a singularly useless human. Assembled against France were five separate armies, totaling 662,000, led by talented commanders, all of whom had already defeated the little corporal. To buy time for the fortification of Paris, Napoleon did what was natural to him, and went on the offensive in order to split the armies arrayed against him. British commander Arthur Wellington, the victor of Spain, and Prussian general Gerbhard Blücher were shocked at the speed which Napoleon descended upon them. But the Frenchmen's underlings misunderstood the commands they were given, resulting in their enemy being driven together rather than apart. At Ligny, Napoleon declared that in three hours the fate of the campaign will be decided. If Ney carries out his orders thoroughly, not a man or gun of this army in front of us will get away. The problem, of course, was that it relied upon Ney, the supposed bravest of the brave. At the crucial moment, Napoleon called upon the man's reserves, who should have wrapped up their prior mission at Quatre Bras. But Ney had uncharacteristically delayed his attack, despite expressed orders to do otherwise. When Ney was nowhere to be found, Napoleon sent a courtier to retrieve him. Finding instead Darillon's corpse, the courtier decided to give them Ney's orders to join the fight at Ligny. But because the marching orders were unexpected, Darillon's arrival on the French flank rather than the Prussian flank sent the French forces into a panic, thinking that they had been outflanked by a new unknown enemy force. It took an hour to figure out the mistake and reorganize the French forces. Waiting precisely for the next crucial moment, Napoleon ordered Darlone's corps, but again was baffled when nothing happened. Turns out Ney had lost his temper at losing Darlone's troops and had overruled the courtier's order. Under the threat of a court-martial, he turned his forces around to reinforce Ney instead. Thus, 22,000 elite French troops spent the day marching back and forth between Ligny and Quatre Bras without ever seeing action in either battle. Without the reinforcements, Napoleon's trap lacked teeth, and the enemy forces survived the day and retreated back to Waterloo.
Waterloo, located in present-day Belgium, wasn't yet famous. It was a small town on the road from Brussels to Charleroi, situated on a low plateau surrounded by gentle slopes and undulating fields. The area was rural and sparsely populated, consisting mostly of farmland, woods, and small villages. The terrain was marked by deep ravines and streams, making it difficult to navigate for both armies. In the days leading up to the Battle of Waterloo, the town was transformed into a massive military camp, as the armies of Napoleon and the Allied forces under the Duke of Wellington and Field Marshal Blucher converged on the area. The roads leading to Waterloo were soon clogged with troops, wagons, and artillery, as both sides rushed to secure the strategic high ground and prepare for battle. The weather in the days preceding the battle were unseasonably wet. Heavy rain and thunderstorms turned the fields and roads into a sea of mud. This made movement difficult for the troops and slowed down the progress of the armies. As the forces took up their positions, tension mounted on both sides, with soldiers and officers aware that the fate of Europe rested on the outcome of the impending battle. For Napoleon, victory at Waterloo would mean the restoration of his power and the continuation of his empire. For the Allied forces, it would mean the final defeat of Napoleon and preservation of the independence of Europe. In McLean's mind, Bonaparte should have pulled the plug from the very beginning. The historian reveals that not only did the waterlogged ground make it impossible for the French to maneuver their superior artillery, but the lethal impact of their cannonballs was reduced, since round shot would not ricochet in these conditions. The artillery would not be able to tear holes in the dense British squares. There were other signs that ought to have been noticed, including the fact that the general fell asleep while seated on a chair alongside the road. From the beginning, Napoleon underestimated his opponent, informing his subordinates that just because you've been beaten by Wellington, you think he's a good general. I tell you, Wellington is a bad general, the English are bad troops, and this affair is nothing more than eating breakfast. Filled with arrogance, he committed the cardinal sin of letting his opponent choose the ground for the coming battle. The French began the fight with an unimaginative full frontal assault, during which Napoleon estimated his odds of winning at 90%. Around 3 p.m., the incompetent Ney initiated a cavalry charge without infantry backup. Although he personally survived, his unsupported horsemen were cut to pieces. An hour into the fight, Napoleon reassessed the field and lowered his odds for victory to just 60%. His confidence rose over the course of the next few hours, though, and Wellington was heard to remark, God bring me night or bring me Blucher. But it wasn't Blucher that surprised the French. Rather, it was the sudden appearance of the first-foot grenadiers who changed the course of history. They had patiently remained hidden on the reverse of a slope for seven hours, finally emerging to throw back Napoleon's middle guard, who had believed that they had merely been sent in for mop-up duty. As calls of the guard is retreating began to emerge, 
the Prussians broke through the French left and annihilated the remaining confidence of Napoleon's forces. As military theorist Karl von Clausewitz teaches us, in war, momentum is everything. McLinn writes, it was not more than 10 minutes after the arrival of the Prussians that Wellington rode to the crest of the Mont St. Jean Ridge and waved his hat three times in a pre-arranged signal to order a general advance. The entire Allied army descended from the ridge like a torrent. Three battalions of the Old Guard took up their stations, covering the flight of their emperor and their comrades. Their commander, General Cambrone, was called on to surrender, but refused, uttering one defiant word in reply to his adversaries, murd, or shit in English. The Allies brought up big guns and mowed down the valiant guard where they stood. Historian Andrew Roberts gives us perspective telling us that the Battle of Waterloo was a savage and deadly encounter, with tens of thousands of men losing their lives or being wounded in the course of a single day. Estimates vary, but it is believed that around 50,000 men were killed or injured in the fighting. The scale of the carnage was unprecedented, and it left a lasting impression on those who witnessed it. Despite the cost, however, the battle was a decisive victory for the Allied forces, and it marked the beginning of a new era of peace and stability in Europe. But Napoleon had managed to escape. With 117,000 men still alive and ready to defend Paris, he imagined that he could hold off the Allies, still half a million strong, long enough for reinforcements to arrive. He even dreamed of having 80,000 sharpshooters in position to halt the Allies' crossing of the Somme. But rather than reviving his dictatorial ways in order to rally the nation to sacrifice everything, Napoleon returned to Paris intent on living within the constitutional limits that had been recently set up for him. There were plenty of Allies that encouraged him to head a 1793-styled revolution one that surely would have brought back terror in order to shape France to his needs. But the Corsican steadfastly refused. McLinn tells us that the result of his hesitation was the equivalent of the hyenas sensing that the lion is wounded. Lafayette, the hero of the American Revolution, Fouche, Napoleon's treasonous head of police, and Talleyrand, his turncoat foreign advisor, convinced Parliament to demand the Emperor's abdication. Napoleon consented, giving up his power on June 22, 1815, in favor of his young son. He vainly claimed to be sacrificing himself for his love of the nation. Napoleon departed Paris to stop at the home of his stepdaughter, before intending to flee to America. But Fouche played a double game, delaying the ship through back channels in order to give the British time to negotiate for the prize that had always eluded them. One of the most striking images in French history was made on July 8th, 
as Napoleon, the former emperor who had made all of Europe tremble, boarded an insignificant rowboat bound for an anonymous frigate. Meanwhile, Louis XVIII re-entered the city of Paris to reclaim his family's birthright. It had been exactly 100 days since the king had fled the capital upon hearing about his adversary's escape from Elba. Napoleon's departure was delayed at port until July 13th, at which point Napoleon chose to put his fate into the hands of the British rather than risk setting out on a whaling boat, hoping to hitch a ride with the first ship that they managed to flag down along the high seas. But the emperor was the victim of deceit, as the English captain of the Belfon claimed that the nation desired to treat him with honor. But Lord Liverpool, one of the three men who would decide Napoleon's final resting place, wrote, We wish that the king of France would hang or shoot Bonaparte, as the best termination of the business. If the king of France does not feel himself sufficiently strong to treat him as a rebel, we are ready to take up upon ourselves the custody of this person. Once upon the British warship, he was treated as a prisoner of war, something that Napoleon fought against, claiming that his willingness to go peacefully with the English meant that he was there of his own free will. The Corsican stated for the record that I am not a prisoner, but the guest of England. If the government, in ordering the captain of the Bellophon to receive me as well as my suite, desired only to set a trap, it has forfeited its honor and sullied its flag. English historian Charles Estelle writes that Napoleon's belief that he had been unfairly treated by the British was deeply held and sincere. He was convinced that he had been tricked into surrendering and that his subsequent captivity and trial were unjust and illegitimate. Regardless of his own feelings, Napoleon was forced to board the Prometheus and set sail under guard to St. Helena, the lonely rock where he was to be chained for the rest of his life. St. Helena is a remote, windswept island located in the South Atlantic Ocean, about 1,200 miles west off of the coast of Africa. It is a volcanic island with rugged cliffs, deep valleys, with rugged terrain that make it a truly dramatic and awe-inspiring place. The island was discovered by Portuguese explorers in 1502, and it soon became an important stopping point for ships traveling between Europe and the Far East. Over the centuries, St. Helena was visited by countless explorers, traders, and travelers, many of whom left their mark on the island's culture and history. In 1659, the English East India Company established a permanent settlement on the island, and it became a key British possession. It is a tiny island, just 10 miles long and 6 miles wide, with a population today of around 4,500 people. The terrain is rugged and mountainous, with steep cliffs plunging down to the sea below. The island is covered in lush vegetation, including tropical forests, grassy hillsides, and rugged cliffs. Historian Alan Shalm informs us that the island's remoteness is legendary 
as it lies hundreds of miles from the nearest landmass, surrounded by treacherous seas and subject to sudden squalls. The climate on St. Helena is subtropical, with mild temperatures and frequent rainfall. The island was so damp, the residents had to heat up the playing cards to prevent them from sticking together. On the plus side, the island is home to a diverse range of flora and fauna, including endemic species of birds, plants, and insects that are found nowhere else in the world. For the Frenchman and his companions, the combination of climate and indigenous disease would prove lethal. Historians have described St. Helena as a forbidding and isolated place, where the natural beauty of the landscape is tempered by the harsh reality of its remoteness and inhospitable terrain. According to one historian, the island is a place of exile, a rock in the middle of the ocean, a place of confinement, where the walls of the prison are the cliffs of the island. Another historian described the island as a barren and desolate place, where the loneliness of the landscape is matched only by the isolation of its inhabitants. And J. David Markham notes that the island was as far from civilization as any place on Earth. Upon witnessing his final destination, Napoleon reportedly stated that he would have been better off if he had stayed in Egypt. This time around, Napoleon was indeed a prisoner. Rather than the governing mansion on Elba, his first night on St. Helena was within a boarding house in the port of Jamestown. He spent the next two months loafing around the pavilion of the house of an East India Company agent. His final residence was at Longwood, the former summer house of the island's lieutenant governor. Its 44 rooms each measured the size of a cramped prison cell. The rats of the building didn't seem to mind their new French residence, as they remained bold enough to run beneath the feet of Napoleon when he was seated for dinner. The former emperor was allowed to maintain 12 servants and 3 officers. Henry Gratian Bertrand was one of them. He brought his wife Fanny under false pretenses. She personally despised the emperor and attempted to drown herself upon finding out that she was to share his exile. It only took a few months for Napoleon to make an inappropriate pass at the woman. Although he was nearing 50 years old, the Corsican reacted to rejection as though he were a 14-year-old boy, angrily informing Fanny's husband that the man had married a whore who slept around with everyone on the island. Everyone, that is, except Napoleon. Despite the obvious hatred, the Bertrands both remained loyal to the end, remaining on the island until Napoleon's death. The second officer accompanying the emperor was Marquis Charles Tristan de Montholon. He was likely chosen due to the fact that the lecherous Napoleon was quite smitten with the man's wife. Napoleon believed that the man served him faithfully, particularly after engaging in a duel to the death with the final character chosen to share the emperor's exile. That third officer was Baron Gaspar Gorgard. His experience on St. Helena was one of frustration and disillusionment. 
quickly becoming disillusioned with life on the island, feeling that the British authorities were unnecessarily harsh and restrictive in their treatment of the exiles. He also clashed with other members of Napoleon's entourage, including the Bertrands, whom he saw as overly subservient to the emperor. Despite these difficulties, Gorgard remained fiercely loyal to Napoleon and worked tirelessly to improve his living conditions on the island. He was one of the few exiles who was allowed to visit Napoleon regularly, and he became one of the emperor's most trusted confidants during the final years. After Napoleon's death, however, Gorgard returned to France, where he faced criticism and ridicule from those who portrayed him merely as a lackey of the fallen emperor. He wrote several books about his experience on St. Helena, including a detailed account of his personal conversations with Napoleon that was published in 1823, the contents of which earned Gorgard the title of Judas. McLinn tells us that the military historian was responsible for spreading three blatant lies regarding life on St. Helena. First was the lie that Napoleon had an immense treasure of gold and silver hidden at Longwood, which would allow him to escape from the island whenever he chose. Secondly, he claimed that St. Helena had a healthy climate. And lastly, that Napoleon's history of illnesses were mere propaganda, designed to elicit sympathy from British nobles. The climate and his issues with illness were in fact interlinked. The island was home to a waterborne parasite that made anebic dysentery endemic to the island. The disease was spread through the ingestion of contaminated food or water, or through close contact with an infected person. Napoleon's home of Longwood had no running water of its own, and servants had to fetch it from a well three miles away. Once the parasite enters the body, it can invade the lining of the intestines, causing inflammation and damage to the intestinal wall. One of the most common symptoms of this form of dysentery is frequent loose bowels that may contain blood or mucus. Other symptoms can include cramping, abdominal pain, fever, and fatigue. In severe cases, the infection can lead to dehydration, malnutrition, and other serious complications. Amoebic dysentery was a significant health concern for Napoleon and his entourage during their exile. The disease was widespread on the island, and many of the residents and exiles suffered from its debilitating effects. Napoleon himself was believed to have contracted dysentery at least once during his time on St. Helena, and the illness may have contributed to his declining health in the years leading up to his death. At least 56 of the 630 British guards also contracted the illness. Despite the best efforts of his doctors and attendants, there was little that could be done to cure the disease at the time, and many of the island's residents suffered greatly as a result. In between bouts of illness, Napoleon worked on his English, wrote his memoirs, which became the number one bestseller of the 19th century, and even tried his hand at gardening. Markham, in the book Napoleon for Dummies, notes that the Frenchman's gardens on St. Helena were a source of pride and joy for him, 
and he spent many hours each day tending to his plants and trees. He even experimented with new gardening techniques and was known to graft different types of fruit trees together in order to create new varieties. The rest of his time was spent feuding with Sir Hudson Lowe, the man assigned to frustrate the last years of Napoleon's life. Duke Wellington, the victor of Waterloo, had referred to Lowe as a damned fool, while McLinn refers to him as a narrow, humorless by-the-book marinette who lacked the social ease and innate confidence to make a success of a job calling for self-reliance and the broadest human empathies. The British jailer saw a conspiracy in everything, refusing to let any correspondence pass through without his personal approval. Napoleon was even denied a gift of beans because they were green and white, the color of the Republic. He even denied the island's cobbler of making new shoes for the emperor without first letting him inspect both the old and new pair. Lowe stubbornly wouldn't let Napoleon spend a shekel more than his yearly 12,000-pound allowance. His constant presence annoyed the Corsican, as Lowe only referred to him as general, rather than the requested honorific of emperor. When Bonaparte was refused an increase in funds, the Corsican broke his silver plates in order to sell them. Likewise, he smashed his own furniture in protest of Lowe refusing to grant him more firewood. As annoying as Lowe was, illness proved to be Napoleon's other big problem. Regular bouts of sickness followed by periods of robust health occurred throughout his six-year exile. Although cancer was the official cause of his death, the regular pattern of illness lends credibility to modern historians' assertion that the Corsican was slowly poisoned with arsenic. Why then the diagnosis of cancer? Napoleon surprisingly had a number of supporters in the United Kingdom, and his family was continuously lobbying for his release, either to England or to the USA. Pope Pius VII even pardoned Napoleon, imploring the King of England to release him from his cruel fate, proclaiming that we cannot but feel a lively compassion for the fate of a monarch who was so recently our ally and whose power extended over so great a part of Europe. We do not doubt that the British government, far from adding unnecessary rigors to the exile of this unfortunate prince, will respect his dignity, his person, and his rights. Escape was never an option, however, as Napoleon informed his followers that I would not survive six months in America. I would either be assassinated or forgotten. I'm better off in St. Helena. In 1817, Dr. John Stokey, a British naval surgeon, claimed that Napoleon was suffering from hepatitis. Historian Andrew Roberts tells us that Stokes' diagnosis of hepatitis is probably correct, as the symptoms were all there. The yellowing of the skin, the fever, the loss of appetite, the fatigue, and the swollen liver. The cause was almost certainly the poor sanitation on the island, 
as hepatitis A is often transmitted through contaminated food or water. The implication of Stokes' diagnosis was that his patient would likely make a full recovery if he were allowed to leave the island. Politics reared their ugly head after the diagnosis went public, with the doctor having his pension denied despite the fact that he was just nine months from retirement. In April 1821, Dr. Archibald Arnott was brought in to replace Stoke. This second doctor claimed that the emperor was merely faking his illness. Yet a few weeks later, Napoleon was unable to recognize his friends that remained faithfully at his bedside. Bertrand wrote the following about the moment. Tears came into my eyes when I saw this man, who had been so feared, who had had so proudly commanded, so absolutely, beg for a spoonful of coffee, ask for permission to have it, not obtaining what he had asked for, but asking for it again and again, always without success, but also without any display of a bad temper. At other times in his illness, he had sent his doctors packing, ignored their instructions, and done what he wished. At present, he was as docile as a little child. As the illness remained into the month of May, the Brits rushed into action with two new doctors recommending a dose of chamomile to produce a bowel movement. His personal Italian doctor, Francesco Antamarchi, immediately protested, believing that such an act would cause an internal hemorrhage that would surely kill the patient. He was overruled, however. Nine and a half hours later, Napoleon uttered his final words. France? Army? Tete de Army? Josephine. The British surgeons declared that he had succumbed to hereditary cancer, but such a diagnosis fails to explain all of Napoleon's symptoms. Moreover, Antomici steadfastly refused to sign the medical report. Subsequent autopsies align with the Italian stance, as Napoleon was described to have a steady layer of fat covering his entire body, a finding that runs against the course of cancer, which inevitably causes the patient to become emaciated. That layer of fat is in line, however, with a diagnosis of arsenic poisoning, as toxicity triggers the body to clothe itself in fat as a kind of armor against poisons. Another piece of the puzzle is the fact that Napoleon's body remained perfectly preserved when it was removed from St. Helena to be reburied in France 19 years later. Arsenic happens to be the only known toxin that would have had such an effect. In an attempt to put the mystery to bed, the emperor's hairs were tested and came back with between 10.38 and 10.58 parts of arsenic per million, quite a bit higher than the 0.5 to 0.65 that would have been normal for the era. McLinn points the finger at Monthalon as the only person who had the means and opportunity to preside over a slow poisoning. The man even had intent as he successfully convinced the emperor to amend his last will and testament 
to subtract more than two million from the Bertrands in favor of himself. He likely further profited by accepting money from the Bourbons for the act. The newly restored French king had never forgiven Napoleon for the role that he had played in their family's downfall. McLean expounds on the final chapter of the little corporal's story with the explanation that the terrible beauty of the black art of slow poisoning was that arsenic was not used to kill victims outright, but merely to break down their health by destroying the immune system. When Monthalon overruled Antomarchi to get the dose of chamomile administered to Napoleon on May 3rd, this was tantamount to signing his death warrant. Having given the patient chamomile to relieve constipation and orgeat to relieve thirst, the doctors in effect created a lethal cocktail. The two medications would have combined in the stomach to create mercury cyanide, thus doing what bullets and bayonets in 50 battles had not been able to do and putting an end to Napoleon Bonaparte. In effect, they proved the general right when he included in his will the statement that my death is premature. I have been assassinated by the English oligarchy and their hired murderer. The English people will not be long in avenging me. The founder of analytical psychology, Carl Jung, believed that the human psyche consists of both the conscious and the unconscious mind, and that the latter is not just a repository of repressed desires and traumas, but also contains universal symbolic patterns and images that are shared by all human beings. These patterns and images, called archetypes, play a significant role in shaping our personalities and our relationships with the world around us. Napoleon is one of those shared archetypes, existing as the model of a great major modern general, a throwback to the ancient heroes that we continue to study in our world history classes. McLean, however, argues that the legend of Napoleon as a political savior can be safely laid to rest, writing that a close analysis reveals that he has also been severely overrated as a military commander. There is much hyperbole of the greatest captain of all times variety, but this cannot survive critical scrutiny. He had two great victories at Austerlitz and Friedland, but otherwise his record was not outstanding. He won Marengo only because of De Six and achieved a great victory at Jena Ostat only through Devout. He scrapped through Wagam by the barest of margins, was fought to a standstill by the Russians at Alau and Borodino, and lost badly at Leipzig and Waterloo. He was at his best when commanding smaller armies. It is significant that his best campaigns overall were those of Italy in 1796-97, Egypt in 1798-99, and France in 1814, when he fought a series of smaller engagements against an enemy not present in overwhelming numbers. There can be no denying that Napoleon occupies a high rank in the military history of the ages, but he cannot be counted among the handful of peerless commanders. 
There is nothing in his record to compare with Alexander the Great's undefeated record in the four battles. Nor can he compare with a commander like Genghis Khan Subadai, who was undefeated in a 30-year career of battles in Mongolia, China, Persia, Russia, and Hungary. At his peak, Napoleon never faced another commander who was nearly his equal in talent. McLin instead proposes a different Jungian archetype, one that was born on one island, exiled to a second, and died on a third after having been defeated by a fourth island, England. But if you prefer Greek mythology instead, the historian tells us that the traditional hero, like Hercules, traverses hell as Napoleon did in Russia in 1812, and Prometheus himself, who gave man fire, was chained forever to a rock where a vulture gnawed unceasingly at his entrails. Chained to a rock at St. Helena, Napoleon became the sacrificial victim who in French cultural mythology more than any other man represents the nation and its glory. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.